Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Ultra, Northamptonshire, November 1977. Diana. Her father had asked her to load for him. She disliked shooting. All those poor, poor pheasants. But the chance to be with Daddy without rain controlling his every move was so rare and wonderful that if it meant handling firearms, so be it. And it was a beautiful day, cold and clear, with a November frost sparkling in Ultrop's vast park and the pale front of the house shining in the muted winter sun. And there would be dogs which she loved, as she loved most animals. Horses were the exception. Too big, too unpredictable. She didn't have smart tweeds like everyone else, so shuffled along after the guns in her jeans. As guest of honour, the prince had been given the next peg to her father, a host. He was only a few feet away from her in the field, much closer than at dinner last night, where she'd observed him from down the table. She'd been unable to keep her eyes off him. She'd seen him before, of course, but not since she was a child. He seemed younger now than he had then, and much, much more handsome. His eyes shone warmly. His smile was wide and friendly. His hair was softer and wavier than in the photograph by the dormitory entrance at school, where it looked as if it were painted on. Even his famously large ears didn't look all that big. In his perfect tuxedo, he looked supremely elegant, but also vigorous, energetic. Wendy Holden is the author of 11 best-selling novels and has sold more than 3 million books worldwide. Her books include Born Survivors, Beautiful People, The Governess and The Duchess. Today I'm talking to Wendy Holden about her latest novel, The Princess, A Love Story. Wendy Holden, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. The Princess affords us a glimpse into the life of the young lady, Diana Spencer. We're all familiar with what came afterwards, the history, the tumultuous life, the tragedy, and the media scrum that hounded her for her whole life. But how did you go about finding the voice of that girl, that young woman in Diana Spencer? It was a combination of things. I mean, I, I read a huge number of books. I watched a huge number of documentaries and films, looked at lots of photographs because photographs can really construct a whole scene and with with a writer's imagination you can think of a whole world behind behind a single image but really I, I was really trying to get across this idea of, of, of what it was like to be her in all these different stages in her life because the princess is about as you say her early life and that's what I was interested in more than um, what came after I was interested in the sort of hidden side of the world's most famous woman, a story not many people know. And so I wanted to know every single detail about her journey to the altar, exactly how it came about, who was involved, what happened. And I, I, it was a much more amazing story, much more complicated and dramatic and funny than I ever imagined. So um, that was my starting point. How did she do it? And I've also also been interested in 
elites and in secret societies. And the royal family is the ultimate secret society, the ultimate elite. And I wondered how Diana had um, entered it and what the procedure was. So it was all those different questions I was trying to answer in my novel, but most of all focused on, on this girl and trying to imagine what it was like to be her at that particular time in history, um, moving into this situation. Diana Spencer is really the ultimate romantic idealist in many ways. Definitely, absolutely, completely. I think she really was in love with the idea of love and she completely believed that, that Charles was the embodiment of a romantic hero and, and life with him would be eternal bliss. And it's not as if other people didn't try to warn her that that possibly wasn't the case. And there was quite a lot of evidence to the contrary. And also the relationship itself wasn't smooth. It was quite stuttering and often it was quite farcical because Prince Charles wasn't really committed to it. And she managed to proceed and believe the whole time that this was meant to be, this was her romantic destiny, you know, this was the man. And I think she could only have done that if she had this very strong idea, fueled by her romantic reading, about love and how to go about um, finding the perfect man, which is basically to be a, you know, sort of innocent heroine and wait for the worldly prince to come along and sweep you off your feet. This story of the young Diana is told through a number of perspectives, initially through a fictional character, Sandy. What part does Sandy play in the life of the soon-to-be princess? I always knew, as I said earlier, I always knew I wanted to tell this, this story of, of, of Diana's youth and young girlhood and how she moved towards the wedding and, and how the whole thing came about. But it was very complicated. It's a very complicated story. and Lots of different people are involved, as we were just saying. Uh, and I and I needed to have a sort of framing device to 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 make make it all work. And I also wanted to get across a sense of what it was like growing up um, at well at Sandringham, where she spent most of her childhood, with this fractured family and all these sort of slightly sort of eccentric people. Like her father was slightly eccentric, um, and her mother was obviously not there because they they were they were divorced. And so the children kind of roamed free. And in and her sisters, um, particularly her middle sister, sorry, her elder sister, um, used to do things like ride the horse in the house and, and upstairs to the nursery and all sorts of quite sort of eccentric, sort of crazy English um, aristocracy types of things. And it reminded me of Nancy Mitford's The, the Pursuit of Love, where this very sensible girl, um, a friend of the family, comes to, to stay with them and falls in love with this sort of slightly crazy family and, and all their sort of amazing, weird and wonderful traditions and, and habits and personalities. My original idea for Sandy was that she was a character like that and she was entering the house of the Spencers who were, you know, this, this sort of slightly colourful, glamorous, slightly crazy lot. But also I wanted to show how that, her perception of them slightly darkened because it wasn't really fun. You know, it looked fun when you were a little girl, all the freedom, all the lack of absolute vision and all the rest of it. But actually, it had fairly disastrous consequences in the sense that uh, nobody really took much notice of her. And she was, you know, free to develop all these ideas as we were just discussing about, about love and the world. I mean, there was nobody really to, to advise her. So, um, yeah, that's that's why Sandy was there. So, And I wanted her to be, to be a foil to Diana, someone who was quite had a feature on the ground and also who represented the modern world because Sandy is a, is a clever girl uh, and we were talking about the 1970s here but they're both schoolgirls in the 1970s as the novel opens and Sandy is clever she comes from a fairly humble background but she's definitely got her eyes on a career she wants to have a proper job she wants to you know be something in the world and Diana by contrast is, is you know 
dreaming about the perfect man and is very much coming from a, a traditional aristocratic background where girls aren't particularly expected to work or have ambitions. So she's meant to be a contrast and sort of show how Diana's mindset um, developed. There were so many different strands which led towards the 1981 Royal Wedding, so many different events and people, as, and, and that was one of them. So Sandy represents the real world and as opposed to the enclosed aristocratic world of Diana and the particular ideas that she formed herself about love. Stephen Barry is a character who plays a valet to Charles and a role in the impending union between Charles and Diana. Is he the ultimate royal insider? He certainly is. Um, Stephen Barry is a real person, as, as are most people who have fictionalised in The Princess. As I said earlier, I did lots of reading, very, very wide reading, all kinds of sources. And one of them was Stephen Barry's um, own autobiography, which is very gossipy, very funny, very bitchy, because he spent 12 years as, as Prince Charles's manservant. But it was when I found um, the bits about how he handled Prince Charles's girlfriends, I, I could really see him as, as a character. Because Stephen Barry in the novel is somebody, everybody's got their own reason for, for wanting this relationship to, to go ahead. Everybody's got their own reason for wanting the marriage to happen. And so Stephen Barry's reason is that when Charles gets married, um, he's, he fears for his job because the Princess of Wales is going to fire the valet who comes in and draws the curtains and runs the bath and lays out the, the clothes and all that. But he, he's looking for somebody who, he, like everybody else, um, thought Diana was very biddable, he could be pushed around, he was very young and, and he could be you know, formed and moulded according to what was required. So he sort of saw her as someone who, who would be on his side in, in, in the novel. So that's his motivation. But he's actually quite kind to her. But he, and, and he's very helpful. And so I imagined him um, giving her lots of tips as to what to talk to Charles about, because obviously there was a, a complete chasm between Charles and Diana in terms of interests and intellect and, and, um, and, and age, obviously. And so I particularly enjoyed uh, imagining a scene where Stephen Barry has to explain to Diana what the Goon Show is, because the Goon Show is this kind of comedy show from the 50s. We're talking there about Harry Seacombe, I think, and Spike Milligan. Exactly, and Prince Charles thought they were completely hilarious, but I just could not imagine Diana would ever find them funny. And so I just sort of imagined Stephen Barry, this sort of very camp valet, having to explain, you know, who all these people were and, and why they were funny. And Diana was saying, well, does he never watch, you know, Crossroads? Or does he never watch, you know, and, and any one of the sort of funny sitcoms that were on at the time? So th there was, I was trying to get across an idea of the kind of comedy of this, these two completely different people coming together, as well as um, the sort of tragedy and, and difficulty of it. So, yeah, so Stephen Barry... It was a fixer and the ultimate world insider, as you say, because, you know, he, he literally told the, the girls in the novel, and I think in, in real life too, you know, when they came to the palace, you know, where they, where they should park, what door they should go to, he would organise the dinners, you know, the candles, the cold salmon, and then afterwards he, he'd, he'd see them out and wave them off. So, um, which struck me as just an amazing character. You know, he was a kind of buttons plus 
you know, to, to Diana Cinderella, you know, who's helping to facilitate this. And there needed to be somebody, because obviously the Queen Mother had spotted her, but the Queen Mother couldn't do all that. There had to be somebody who was physically going to do the arrangements of these situations, the detail of it all, how it actually happens, you know, even from where you park in the, in the palace car park, which door you go through, because it's all so fascinating and it's all such a completely closed world. And it was also crucial to the development of the relationship. And Stephen's a funny character. I really got very fond of Stephen. He gets quite exasperated with her sometimes and, and vice versa. But they're kind of a double act to, uh, to a certain extent in, in the middle of the novel. And there are other observers to Diana's journey to the altar. Charles, of course, plays the predictable role of the reluctant and often absent fiancé. But the Queen Mother is this very interesting link to the past, those traditional royal values, if you like. How does she influence the courtship? Well, the Queen Mother had a very, very pragmatic view of, of what was required. She'd lived through the abdication um, and she was, and even though you could say the Queen Mother had done quite well out of the abdication because she became Queen, which she obviously enjoyed, she was determined, as were the rest of the royal family, that Charles would not be um, another Edward VIII. And at the time, in the, in the late 1970s, it was a bit worrying because he was 30 and he hadn't shown the slightest inclination to marry. And this had happened before with, with Edward VIII, with completely disastrous consequences as far as the monarchy is concerned. So that was her point of view. She wanted him married. So she set about looking for a suitable girl. At the time, and this shows how long ago the 1980s were, even though they feel as if they're close to us because we still hear the music and you know we see Margaret Thatcher or whatever you want on the telly, they don't seem to have ever gone away, but they are an awfully long way in, in terms of social ideas. And so at the time, uh, the search for a royal bride meant that you were looking for somebody who was very young, so they could have lots of children, um, Protestant, um, because Catholics aren't allowed to marry into the royal family, and aristocratic, but crucially, and, and this is something that has completely changed, somebody with, without a past, somebody who was pure and undefiled, as the euphemism went. So Diana was literally the only person left. And so when, or almost the only person left. So when the Queen Mother spotted her, that, that she looks great, that's, that's, that's the girl. But I'm really interested in, in the Queen Mother because she's always struck me as the most kind of brilliant pantomime villain. And in my last novel, The Duchess, she, she is the foil to Wallace Simpson and, and, and is, is quite a difficult character in the Duchess and in the Princess, I wanted to carry on this idea of the Queen Mother as this very steely and determined and actually you know, completely um, inflexible woman who could see what the royal family needed, who was the ultimate PR woman, that was completely the case. She represented the old guard, but she was also very forward looking because she could see trouble ahead. Um, although in the case of Diana, she badly miscalculated and didn't see how much trouble that was gonna be, as nor did anyone. But um, yeah, so so I, I just I just love the idea of the Queen Mother as this as a kind of as a villain of the of, of, of the piece because she's the the really clever one who sees what's required and, and and everyone else has to fall into line. There's another observer to the action too, and that's the media. What we know about Princess Diana has mostly been filtered through the prism of the media. It's a rather tabloid portrait. What do you draw from the media and the media's portrayal of Diana? makes its way into the book. I really wanted the British press to be um, a character in the novel. The Queen Mother is, is one of the facilitators. Stephen Barry is another. But the, the press 
fell in love with Diana right from the beginning. And I think the reason for that was that she understood them. You know, she was a girl of, of her age. She loved tabloid newspapers. She knew what they wanted and she understood them and she liked them. She, I mean, the, the rest of the royal family hated the press. They, th they thought that they were intrusive. They thought that they were cheeky and, and they were obstacles and, and they were just to be despised. But Diana didn't see them that way. She, 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 she liked them. And she made friends quite quickly with, with quite a lot of the, the press men and, and women that followed her. And they reciprocated by getting behind her cause and they just loved her. And I think as much as anyone else, as much as the pre-mother, as much as Stephen Barry, as much as Charles, they helped push the couple together. They were completely determined to, to make this union happen. And of course, there were various moments which were really fun to fictionalise, such as the, the iconic photograph of Diana in, in a see-through skirt. That was a classic example of how I got inspiration for a photograph. I was looking at the photograph and seeing the children that she was with and thinking about the circumstances. You know, she was working at this nursery at the time. And, and I read a couple of accounts of how it had happened. The press had arrived and the nursery manager had said, oh, Diana, they really want to. Do you think if you went outside and posed for a couple of pictures, they'd go away? And, you know, so that's what she did. And of course, it resulted in this kind of humongous storm. She was on the front cover with the sun streaming through her skirt. And she must have been horrified. And she must have thought that was going to spell the end of the relationship because the royal family were going to hate that because it was you know, quite revealing. So I, I, I was able to think of a whole chapter um, imagining you know, the scene in the nursery and, and how it all gone down. And so that was really fun. But um, the, the, her relationship with the media was, was central to the princess because it was a, I was able to point out very various aspects of her character, such as she was very quick-witted, very clever. And so when she and Prince Charles were at Balmoral, she was staying there for the first time, um, she spotted the press slithering through the undergrowth towards her to take a picture, because at that time she was fairly obscure. No, and the race was on amongst the press to get a picture of her. And so she spotted them um, slithering up behind her in a handbag with her compact mirror and was able to run away, you know, without turning around, so they never got a picture. They were a really important part of the story, in fact, a crucial part of the story. And the individual men and women were really interesting. They were real characters, you know, these sort of uh, red-top tabloid types. And so I had lots of fun fictionalising them, you know, sitting in uh, cars waiting for her, and uh, would she turn up, which one was she, and so on. But of course, I mean, later on, the media became much more of a problem for her. But at the very beginning, it was a perfect relationship and, and it worked brilliantly for both of them. My final question really comes in the form of a confession um, and a rather embarrassing one. I'm not a disciple of Diana, but nevertheless, I found myself getting a little emotional as I read The Princess. What was happening to me? <laughs> it's a very sad story. I mean, it's a story of a very young, very idealistic girl who was genuinely madly in love and was completely innocent and so incredibly young, being drawn into the, the, the more of this very um, cold institution, which, which really acted mostly for its own perpetuation, for its own survival. And she was just a, a, a means to, to that end. I mean, of course, the royal family badly miscalculated with Diana. She turned out to be anything but um, biddable. And she caused a, um, a huge amount of trouble for them, which they never saw coming because they'd underestimated her and they, they thought they could push her around and treat her as other princes of Wales of the past had been treated. I'm glad you felt that way because I, I, want, I wanted people to care about her. I wanted to, people to see her 
as, as a very special, clever person she was, very complicated and, and someone who'd had a, a difficult childhood, but still touchingly believed um, in, in perfect love. But of course that was, um, that never happened for her and it was really, really sad. So yeah, I think that's probably what happened to you. It's certainly what happened to me. I find myself, you know, more and more drawn into her story. And uh, she, she's a completely fascinating person. Uh, well, that is reassuring. Now I can uh, rest more easily. But um, it's great to get the inside story, fictional or otherwise. And Wendy Holden, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been talking to Wendy Holden about her new book, The Princess. It's published by Welbeck, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.